Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQBD in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, Roman emperors have long provided a template for autocrats and a warning for politicians, according to acclaimed historian Mary Beard. Though not all emperors were cruel, bloodthirsty, or decadent, Beard's new book, Emperor of Rome, looks at the daily practicalities of their lives as they managed budgets and troop deployments and responded to petitions from their subjects. It also examines the soldiers, aristocrats, and the enslaved who made the imperial system function and how the populace regarded or constructed the figure of their emperor, all making us rethink the image of unbridled power and conquest so often ascribed to the emperor of Rome. Join us. Welcome to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. The Roman Empire continues to fascinate us, most recently expressed in a TikTok trend that had users asking the men in their lives how often they think about it. But we also turn to ancient Rome when feeling anxious about our democracy or the rise of autocracy, looking for parallels. Perhaps no figure from ancient Rome has captured our imaginations more than the Roman emperor. And in renowned historian Mary Beard's new book, she uses the role of the emperor to better understand, as she writes, how the Romans themselves understood, debated, and contested a vision of power that still hangs over us. Beard's new book is called Emperor of Rome, and she joins me now. Mary Beard, welcome to Forum. It's great to be with you. It's really wonderful to have you as well. You know, there's this this refreshing trend among historians for some time now that they look at events through the eyes of the people who were often historically overlooked, women, the enslaved, working people. But yeah, 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 go ahead. Sorry. I think that's wonderful, and and you would you might think from the title of this book that I was not doing that, <laughs> right? <laughs> this might look like very posh old men style history, but I can promise you it's not, because I think what's amazing about the role of the Roman emperor is that you see through his eyes all kinds of things about the ordinary people all over the Roman Empire who brought their problems to him, who worked for him, um, whose you know, begging letters he received and responded to. So although it's called Emperor of Rome, and I'm, I'm interested in those big guys, it really is a kind of bottom-up history of the emperor. 
Yes. And I understand that this book came out of some lectures that you did actually in Washington, D.C., in part that you were looking at modern representations of Roman emperors and all of these statues. How did that spark this? Yeah, well, you're not quite right there because the, my previous book was came out of the lectures I did in Washington, D.C., and this is a kind of follow-up to it. Um, uh, I was extremely interested in why on earth we should still be interested in these guys, yeah. why we should still um, have their statues all around us, why we should have cartoons of the Emperor Nero um, still on the pages of our newspapers. And so I did one series in Washington, D.C., um, where I looked at how we kind of showed ourselves what these emperors were like. Uh, and this book isn't quite that. That was my previous book. Sorry, it sounds as if S-P-Q-R, I write all... yeah. No, no, that was um, The Twelve Caesars. <laughs> sorry. Sorry. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> sorry, this sounds very, very kind of uh, overproductive, and I can promise you <laughs> it um, um, This really is, in a way, a kind of companion volume to, to both S-P-Q-R and The Twelve Caesars. Yeah. So, what happens if we look at what it means to be governed by a Roman emperor, to be a Roman emperor? What is their job description? What do they do all day? And to try to kind of strike a balance between how we think of them and how they really were. I, I, I ought to say to people, because um, I think the history of the Roman Empire can be very off-putting sometimes, partly because you think... Oh, blimey, I've got to know whether Marcus Aurelius comes before or after Antoninus Pius. And it all mm. looks very, very kind of complicated. What my book, the most recent book, is trying to do is to say, look, just think about the emperor. You know? I mean, I'm sure people listening um, in the Bay Area, you know, can't actually tell you all the American presidents from the word go. And I certainly can't tell you all the British kings and queens. But actually, you can go beyond that and you can say, but we still have a, a vision in our heads of what it is to be a president, what it is to be a king. And the Romans had a vision of what it was to be an emperor, you know, larger than life, a bit lurid, terribly hardworking, uh, in a, and a very complicated picture. Yeah. You write and introduce us at the very beginning of the book to an emperor who is sort of, quote unquote, considered a bad emperor, Elagabalus. And I'm wondering what you can tell us about him and, and why he was the first emperor you wanted to write about. Well, I started with Elagabalus, who is a teenage emperor from Syria who ruled between 218 and 222 CE. And I wanted to start with uh, an emperor people wouldn't usually have heard of. Because I wanted to say, look, you, you know, there's lots we can say about this, whether we know the story or not. Um, so I start with Elagabalus. And it, the other reason for, for homing in on him is that the stories in ancient writers told about him are so extreme, so over the top, um, you know, that he makes... You know, the Emperor Nero looked like a bit of a pussycat, honestly. You know, stories about murder, child sacrifice, mm. excessive luxury, you name it. 
And I wanted to say, look, let's suppose we don't know anything about this guy. And most of us don't. I don't really. None of us do. What are these stories all about? You know, why do people um, start to uh, tell over-the-top anecdotes about his dinner parties. You know, he is supposed to have invented the whoopee cushion. He had people um, put sat at his dinner parties on inflatable cushions, which he then deflated. So they ended up the evening on the floor. But he also killed them by smothering them with rose petals. And what I wanted to do was to say, right, okay, None of us know much about this guy, but what what are these stories telling us about power, about what it was like to be a Roman emperor, what it was like to think about a Roman emperor? So I hope he's a, he's a very extravagant entry point into the book. Yes, and not to, to spoil the book, but what were some of the answers to those questions that you came up with with regard well, to Elagabalus? Yeah, I think that it's very easy to look at those kind of anecdotes about, um, oh, he let lions and tigers into his feasts late at night uh, and they were actually tame, but they scared the guests to death. You know, you look at that and you just think, this is a sort of story of teenage excess because he was only a teenager. But Let's try and see what's driving some of these stories. And I think there's, there's, there's some very interesting things, some of which really relate, relate to our own positions of power. Um, uh, you know, one of the questions that Romans raise when they tell these mad stories about their emperors is how do you trust them? How do you know if they're authentic? How, what is frightening about being close to the emperor? And there is this great story about how he has a load of guys to dinner and women, I think. Um, and as I said, he smothers them with rose petals because he's being inadvertently generous. You know, he showers so many petals over them that they smother and die. And I think there's a there's more than a a mad teenager syndrome there, that what we're talking about is, look, here is an emperor who is trying to be really, really generous. Actually, when he's being his most generous, what does he do? He kills you. Uh, and I think he's a, he's a wonderful example of how Romans debated what the power of the emperor was. Now, I have to confess, and this is a confession, that um, uh, when President Trump was president, one of the, the commonest calls I got from um, journalists in the US was, um, which emperor was President Trump most like? Mm -hmm. And I always used to say Elagabalus, and that was not, I have to insist, because I thought he really was like Elagabalus. But I thought that um, the journalists in question would never have heard of Elagabalus. Yeah. So I would give them a little project to go and find out what this emperor was like. <laughs> and so I hope that that started people knowing just a little bit more about him. 
um, because he's an extraordinary semi-fictional character, but who really gets to the heart of the most extravagant image you can ever have of what it was to be a Roman emperor. He never wore the same pair of shoes twice. Well, those of us who are my age remember Imelda Marcos, and she never wore the same pair of shoes twice either. Yeah, I, I think both it reveals that, but also I think what you do in your book is reveal also how how Elagabalus is remembered has so much to do with his successor or how he was succeeded. Yeah, Roman history is a bit like modern history, but it's kind of more exaggerated that your reputation, if you're an emperor, depends on who comes after you. And if you are a loving dad who dies peacefully and hands on the throne to your son, you can bet you will get a very, very good posthumous reputation. If you're assassinated or if somebody succeeds you after civil war, then you can bet that you will get the most vile version of a reputation. And that might be, that really might be because you you were a vile person. But it's also because these guys who came after really needed to justify their own position. Mm-hmm. So you know, ev- every bad emperor was followed by someone who didn't like him. <laughs> and maybe he was bad, maybe he wasn't. But it's all a bit more complicated yeah, than the good that is, you know? Always a good thing to keep in mind. We're talking with classicist Mary Beard, scholar of ancient Rome, author of Emperor of Rome. Her previous books, which I'm so sorry for conflating earlier, are 12 Caesars, SPQR, Women in Power, and Pompeii. And you, our listeners, are invited to join the conversation with your questions for Mary Beard about ancient Rome, 866-733-6786, the number. Stay with us. This is Forum. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking this hour about ancient Rome. All right, but apart from the sanitation, the medicine, education, wine, public order, irrigation, roads, a fresh water system and public health, what have the Romans ever done for us? Brought peace? 
<laughs> that was, of course, the famous <laughs> scene from Monty Python's Life of Brian, which our producer Susie Britton just could not help inserting into our show today. We're talking about what social media seems to be talking about lately, which is the Roman Empire, and we're getting to talk about it with noted historian Mary Beard, whose new book is called Emperor of Rome. And you, our listeners, are invited to join the conversation. What have you always wondered about ancient Rome? Uh, when do you think about the Roman Empire, and what do you think <laughs> of or imagine when you do? <laughs> what do you? What assumption, assumptions do you have about the role of the Roman emperor that you might be questioning now? You can email forum at kqed.org. Find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or Discord. We're at KQED Forum. You can call us at 866-733-6786. And listener Renee writes, I want to tell Mary Beard how much I admire her and her work. I loved SBQR and her book on Pompeii. I watch every she makes, and I especially love the debate with Boris Johnson on which one was better, <laughs> ancient Rome or ancient Greece. She's responsible for my love of ancient Rome, and I cannot wait to read the book. <laughs> well, the, thank you very much. That's made that's made my day. <laughs> oh well, before the break, you were talking about how who gets to write or who gets to succeed an emperor often defines how they're viewed. So is that how Marcus Aurelius came to be viewed as a quote unquote good emperor? Absolutely. I mean, Marcus Aurelius, he's an extremely interesting character. Um, he is succeeded by his son Commodus, who's a real baddie. And anybody who remembers the movie Gladiator can remember quite what a baddie Commodus was. Um, Marcus Aurelius, in part, is glorified because it is in his son and heir's interest to make him a goodie. Now, I, I don't know how good or I don't know how good or bad any of these guys were, honestly. Yeah. Um, but Marcus Aurelius is a is a very curious character because he has um had an enormous uh influence recently. I mean, Marcus Aurelius is two thousand years after he wrote, he is still in the bestseller lists, right? <laughs> With his meditations, his jottings to himself. Um, and he he has a huge cult following. Now, I think they're rather generous to him. You know, I think he's also, like all Romans, pretty brutal, you know, pretty determined to massacre barbarians, uh, not hugely nice to Christians, uh, and um, fairly kind of single-mindedly uh, imperialist. But he certainly has, uh, you know, he's captured the, the imagination with his own, you know, little self-help book. He's captured the imagination of, you know, people from President Clinton to almost anyone you can name. Yeah. Well, one of the things that it really makes me think about is just how fluid our interpretations of history are. And I really love the way that you talked about how that fluidity is different is defined in part or driven in part by the fact that we're changing the questions that we ask and it's changing the answers. Yeah. And that's, that's absolutely yeah, right. Yeah, go ahead. I know. When, you know, when I was an undergraduate, you know, I'm now 68 and I was a student 50 years ago and we didn't, we didn't, Think about women when I did ancient history, you know, in the 1970s. And it really was second wave feminism that changed the questions that we asked about 
um, the history of Rome, the history of Greece, you know, and what answers we thought were good enough. And, you know, I was brought up in a time, historically brought up, in a time of enormous change, where suddenly the people we were looking at in the ancient world, there were suddenly women too, whereas it had been basically just guys. And I think what's exciting about history uh, and not a problem, some people think it's a problem, but I think it's an advantage, is that, of course, we change the questions that we want to ask of ancient history and we get different answers according to our own preoccupations. That's why history changes and and why we we think of it differently and why it's you know why it's still worth doing history. Um, so I'm you know very pleased that there are all kinds of uh, questions being put now about you know non-binary ancients or uh, the complete revolution in thinking about the enslaved um, that simply would have been unthinkable 50 years ago. Yes, you've said that our relationship to history changes when the present forces us to ask different questions of the past. And you are sort of anticipating my question about what present forces now you think are driving the types of questions that we are asking about ancient Rome or, or other parts of history. And that's one of them, right? Our changing acceptance and ideas of gender, gender fluidity, our our ability to center people who have been marginalized historically for so, so long. Is there anything else you would add in terms of present forces that you find really driving some of the questions we have about the past, about ancient Rome? Um, I think those are the main ones. Uh, you know, uh, the Changing ideas of gender, changing ideas of um, uh, minority communities, the enslaved, and the diversity of the Roman Empire. Uh, you know, I think they're pretty big. <laughs> Those know, are. Happy. They're very big. <laughs> I mean, you know, I'm happy with that. Uh, but I was, you know, you know, this is obviously it's my personal story, but uh, it's only as I've come to write about Rome that I've come to see how dramatically diverse the Roman Empire is. No, I don't mean by that to suggest that it was a kind of very nice liberal haven. I think it wasn't. There was there was all kinds of prejudice and nastiness in the Roman Empire, you know, and I would not like to go back there one minute. But their prejudices are different from ours. And their view in particular of race is very different from ours. Their view of gender is much no, much more sophisticated than we would like to think of these kind of macho Roman men. That I'm, I suspect that quite a lot of people who think about the Romans <laughs> many times a day imagine. Mm. And uh, I mean, I think they having a dialogue with the past in that way and thinking about, say, how the the Romans think about race um, helps us have a better dialogue with ourselves. Hmm. And, you know, I think it's very interesting that one of the biggest Twitter storms that I ever got into was when I defended a BBC cartoon which portrayed a Roman governor of Britain as a person of colour. Now, I think I know who the governor was, and I think it is plausible, it's not certain, 
that they were a person of colour. But the absolute kind of pylon that I got showed me quite a lot about how people want to think about British history. You know, they they want to think about British history as being white until the 1950s, you know, and actually it wasn't. And we're coming increasingly to see that it wasn't. And, I, you know, I think one of the, the messages of history and the messages of the new questions is that history will only give us new answers if we do ask the questions that we are interested in. And we do see new things which were hiding in plain sight all the time. Yes, it reveals... But it has to be brought out. Yeah. It reveals a lot, doesn't it, when we are fearful of new interpretations of history. Yeah. yeah. It doesn't mean that the last ones and the old ones are wrong. And I still learn huge amounts from historians writing in the last century or the previous century. But you know, history is can only be a conversation. And the present is always one side of that conversation. And the present actually guides that conversation and helps us see the past in a different way. And yeah. you know, that's what's exciting about it, actually. Yeah. Let me go to caller Pavel in Livermore. Pavel, you're on. Hi. So this is not exactly related to the Roman emperors, but more like the Roman Republic. So mm. I might have like a few questions. So one is the Catalan conspiracy, which occurred around uh, 60 BC. Uh, I, when I, when the January 6th riots were going on, I was thinking about the Catalan conspiracy and I felt that there were a lot of parallels of, why Catalaeus was trying to overthrow the government like Trump was trying to overthrow the government. So that's uh, one question. And another question is uh, our republic. How does that compare to the Roman Republic? And <laughs> how, do, how, did the, how did our republic versus the Roman Republic evolve? Hmm. Wow, Pavel. Now, you have to be patient with me because um, y you know much more about uh, the US than I do. Uh, but I can give you my side of the story. And I think there's two things here. There's the, you're right that the Catalinarian conspiracy, it happened in 63 BC, was one of the most um, undermining, dangerous moments in Roman history. Uh, you have a discontented aristocrat who has failed to get elected, a guy called Catiline, who uh, apparently tries to overthrow the state, basically. Uh, it's hugely, but it becomes hugely problematic because um, Cicero, one of the most famous Romans of the first century BC, Cicero is consul chief official of state at the time, he outs Catalina and says, look, I know that you've got a conspiracy. I know you've got this. Um, and he puts Catalina's conspiracy down. Uh, that may be right, that may be wrong. Most people have thought it was right. The issue then comes up, which I think is one that really resonates with us, is that Input in the conspiracy of Catiline down, what he does is he puts to death those involved 
without trial. And it becomes an absolute central moment of political debate in Rome. And it's like our central moments of political debate, honestly, which is how far are you allowed, if you are in government, to uh, to overlook the constitution and the rules if you think the state's in danger? Now, what happens to Cicero is that he does, in a sense, in his terms, save the state. He puts this conspiracy down. It was a violent conspiracy, um, uh, you know, pretty nasty. But in a couple of years, he's exiled because he's broken the rules. And, of course, that's, that's the absolute central dilemma of many modern states. You know, how far can you break the rules if you think the state's in danger? And who's the judge? And so the conspiracy of Catiline and the reaction by Cicero to the conspiracy becomes a, a thread which goes through political debate right up to the present day. Yeah. Well, what drove the transition from a republic to one-person rule? And I am curious how much resistance there was to this ascension of emperors. Well, I think there's... There is a real um, problem of language here because we imagine, you know, most most people imagine because it's natural to imagine that it was under the Roman emperors that the Romans got their empire, right? Now, uh, and the language is deeply confusing, but it's not. The the. Roman Empire, in terms of the territorial extent, the the you know the the provinces, the the conquered territories, the they were acquired. They were acquired under the the Republic, the kind of democracy um, from the fourth to the first century BC. So the emperors didn't acquire the empire. The emperors, in a sense, were made because of the empire, because you have this small, rather primitive, actually, in some ways, city-state um, in a bit of a marshy, mosquito-ridden bit of central Italy on the Tiber. It, For reasons that we still don't fully understand, it was stunningly and perhaps horrifically successful in acquiring a land-based empire. But it only had the institutions of a small little city to govern that. And eventually that crumbles. And eventually they have acquired the empire. But the only way they can govern it is by having a autocratic one-man ruler. And there's a various series, a varied series of attempts at that. But Julius Caesar is, in a sense, the finally successful one. Um followed by his assassination, followed by civil war, followed then by one-man rule. Mm. And the one-man rule was really started because they didn't know how to cope with the empire they had acquired. Mm. And they, they thought they could do it much more easily by having one guy in charge for a long time, not, you know, not everybody changing every nine months or so. Yeah. 
The empire created the emperors, as you say. Let me go to caller Don in San Jose. Don, you're on. Thank you. Yes, my question is about Julius Caesar. Uh, in, in a sense, he was the first emperor. You know, if you look aside from Sulla, uh, and, and he was really only there for four years before he was uh, assassinated. He came back from Gaul and uh, uh, was declared uh, dictator for life by the Senate. Why was the Senate so willing to give up all power to him when hmm. in previous years they were not? John, thanks. Well, yeah, they, they were divided. And some people saw Julius Caesar as a power worth backing. Partly because he had a lot of patronage, uh, he was powerful, and he was successful, and he had money. He was opposed on the other side, which is why he was assassinated, by people who saw that his rule was removing the absolute fundamental principle of the Roman Republic, which was liberty. So you actually have a basic political division between those who see Julius Caesar as a pragmatic answer to their problems of power and those who will not give up libertas, liberty. Um, and it's very hard to know. I have to say, you know, it ought to be easy to know on which side one is. And I, you know, I'm a Democrat and I ought to be on the side of the assassins of Julius Caesar in a way. Um, I have to say that Shakespeare's play, Julius Caesar, has made Brutus and Cassius and those on the side of liberty seem much more honourable than they really were. And I, you know, I'm going to confess that I think one of the nastiest people in Roman history is the Brutus who killed Julius Caesar. You know, he, he claims to be doing it all in the name of freedom, um, but he is a manipulative, exploitative, mm. pretty nasty guy. <laughs> and basically, by that by that stage, they might use the slogan of liberty, but what they're fighting about is who's going to rule the Roman world. Mm. Mary Beard, more with her after the break. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
We're talking about the Roan Empire, and you are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. What was it like to be an emperor, and why does the idea of the Roman Emperor occupy so much space in our political and cultural imaginations? We're talking about it with Mary Beard, who's written a new book called Emperor of Rome, and your listeners are joining the conversation with your questions and comments about what you've wondered about ancient Rome, about what you think about when you imagine ancient Rome, and what parallels we can draw or what studying ancient Rome can teach us about where we are today as a democracy, as a society. You can email forum at kqed.org. Find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or Discord at KQED Forum. You can call us at 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. Stephen writes, as a boy, I was fascinated by the Roman Empire and empires in general. I studied maps of the various empires' extents. I even played a game in my neighborhood where I conquered city blocks and added them to my, quote, empire. <laughs> Mary, I'm wondering what you or how you react to the way that emperors and even, you know, just aspects of the classics get intertwined with expressions of white male supremacy, especially here in the U.S., on the Internet and otherwise. I feel slightly uneasy about it. I mean, that's a bit of an understatement. Um, Because I think it's partly such a misrepresentation of ancient Rome. You know, the, it, it is easy to get the impression that Romans were um, big white men conquering the world. And that's not 100% wrong. That isn't 100%. But we've already said that, you know, one of the most extraordinary uh, in in terms of comparing other empires, one of the most extraordinary features of the Roman Empire is its diversity. You know, it's not just posh white men. Um, you know, we have uh, by the end of the second century CE, you know, we have uh, an emperor from North Africa, from Libya, Septimius Severus, and I mentioned um, the idea that there's you know a, a governor of Roman Britain, who comes from what is now Algeria. Now, we don't know the ethnicity of these people. Um, we, we don't know how far they are Roman Italian settlers, how far they are actually uh, people who come from um, North Africa, how far they have sub-Saharan blood um, in their ancestry. But the one thing that you can say is that Rome both is a diverse empire and it celebrates it. Uh, the, the founding myths of Rome uh, already tell you that Rome was parading itself as an inclusive place where people from the whole world could come. Right? And so, you know, one of the myths... Uh, of the foundation of Rome is that uh, is the myth of Aeneas, who comes from uh, the city of Troy, the defeated city of Troy in what is now Turkey, um, and brings his, he's a refugee. He comes as a refugee to find Rome. And in perhaps the slightly more famous myth of Romulus and Remus, now they're kind of born um, from, quotes natives of 
the area around Rome. But they also say, look, or Romulus, because I'm afraid he kills Remus, uh, Romulus says, look, I want to welcome everybody. You can come here. Rome is an asylum. It's an asylum for um, enslaved people who have run away. It's an asylum for foreigners. And the, so the idea for me that that Rome represents this very conservative, exclusive sort of society, yeah. which is has been adopted by by white supremacists, is actually just completely wrong in terms of what the Romans are saying about themselves. Yes. What is your thought on calls by academics to maybe dislodge sort of the centrality of the classics in academia? Well, I, look, I think that um, one would be very... One would have a very limited vision if you're going to say the thing that is most important in the world is to know what the Romans did. Now, I've spent my life knowing what the Romans did, but I think that it is wholly to the good that we that we remind people in the West um, that there are all kinds of other traditions that are just as important, just as interesting, uh, and I, I think that is holy to the good you you learn a new way of looking at yourself if you look differently at other traditions um my line would be um i just don't want to throw out the romans <laughs> um, <laughs> because i think they've got a, they've got a particular place for us i mean i think if you suppose you think about virgil's aeneid the great epic poem on the founding of Rome that Virgil wrote at the end of the first century BCE. Now, I think it's a fair bet, you couldn't prove this, that since 19 BCE, when Virgil almost finished it, he died just before he finished it, there hasn't been a single day in the history of the West when someone has not been reading that poem. You know, it is... It is a poem which has been read and reread and influenced, you know, anybody you care to name in Western literature from Dante uh, to, you know, well, any, you know, anybody in the 20th century, Tony Harrison or whatever. Um, no, I, I don't think that gives it special status in terms of saying, therefore, it is better than the Epic of Gilgamesh or the Epic of Beowulf or whoever you choose to name. Um, but I think it gives it a claim on our attention. And all I want to say about why the Romans are important is that I think um, they still have a good claim for us to be interested in them. Mm. But I wouldn't remotely want to say they have a better claim than any kind of histories of mm. um, sub-Saharan Africa or Australia or whatever. You know, we've got to learn to think about history globally, but without giving up um, the things that have been traditionally important. And mm. I think that's, I think we can square that circle. <laughs> well, Kevin writes, my impression is that slaves in Rome worked for some years and were then free, whereas slavery in the U.S. was for life. Can you talk more about slavery in Rome and how it may have been similar or different to other forms at the time? Yes, I, I, mean, I think that one of the real difficulties is that we have tended to conflate unfree labour in the Roman world, 
also ancient Athens, but the Roman world in particular, with unfree labour in um, in America. And of course, there are similarities. There, are, you know, there is something that basically unites people who have been denied their freedom, and that is true. But slavery in the Roman world is very, very different. And part of it, the part we know best, which is the domestic slavery of urban communities, does tend to be a temporary status, that uh, most slaves working in a domestic environment in the cities of the Roman world, most would probably get get their freedom um, in their 40s or 50s. Now, this doesn't justify it, um, but it it is an extremely important factor within the the whole society of the ancient city of Rome, because I think that people reckon that by by the time you get to the second century CE, most of the inhabitants of the city of Rome would have had slaves in their ancestry. They would now be freed, but they would have slave ancestors. I think the problem about that is the way we make it sound a bit upbeat. It also hmm. tends to ignore... Um, the slaves who are working down the mines or the slaves who are working in industrialist, in agricultural estates who would not have that kind of trajectory. And it's the case that, I, I think fairly certainly the case, that the majority of slaves in domestic environments in the city of Rome would be freed. That is not the case for people working down the mines or on... You know, uh, big agricultural communities. And, you know, we've tended to, I think, slightly romanticise Roman slavery Mm -hmm. because of that, the urban model, and not to think about the others, about whom we know very much little, less, very much less. Well, let me go to caller Phil in Burlingame. Phil, you're on. Hi, great show. So Republic comes from Res Republica, which is, uh, you know, that that the the governing of the society is a public matter. So when Rome went from, you know, a a public matter to, you know, the influence of of the emperor, um, you know, how did that change? Because you were just talking about slavery. So as a republic, what percentage of Roman society was enslaved? Um, You know, and then after, you know, when you look at America before women got liberated and in 1920, maybe 30% of American yeah. adults actually had the right to vote. So yeah. I think it's important when we think of democracy to remember what percentage of the society actually participated. Mm. Well, thanks. Yeah. I, I think that's absolutely right. And um, I, it is a guessing game, ultimately, what the numbers of slaves, the enslaved versus the free, was in ancient Rome. But uh, it is... It, it is one of the world's biggest slave societies. And for me, that combined with um, the, the democracy of ancient Athens, those ancient democracies are always tempered by the fact that they were reliant on enslaved labour. And 
it's it's quite a balancing act because um in many ways republican rome or 5th century bc democratic athens have bequeathed to us some of the ways we want to think about citizenly power um the uh, the idea of the free democratic citizen uh, civil liberties and so on uh, and yet and, and that's very important. I think that's really important. They've given us the language to talk about what it is to be a citizen. Yeah. We always have to put up there, though, against that and keep in the background the idea that in the ancient world, citizenship was always parasitic on an enslaved population. And hmm. that makes it different, very, very different from the modern ideal of democracy, though of course, you know, we we also know that um, you know, even if we like to deny this, modern slavery is, I'm afraid, alive and well. We're talking with Mary Beard, and you are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. I do want to ask you about the dinner parties, imperial dining, because you describe it as offering some of the best evidence that we have for how the emperor, as you know, a figure, as an idea, was imagined. Why? Well, you know, this is one place where the, I think the movies get it right. And every every ancient movie is going to have a dinner party scene, isn't it? And I, I think, you know, they're homing in on what the Romans were interested in, which is that it was at dinner uh, that at least to the fellow members of the elite, not to the mass of the Roman population, the emperor was on display and his vices and his virtues were seen and power and hierarchy was enacted. Now, we know that from our own world. You know, we know that, you know, dinner parties are tricky things because they're both places where we're all equal because we're sitting around the same table and we're having the same food. Um, uh, and they're also places where we very much know our place. You know, who's sitting next to the host? You know, who's in the worst place on the table? And you see that writ large in ancient Rome. You see the emperor both um, imposing his power on people at the dinner party. Um, the stories um, of Elagabalus, for example, um, my third century emperor, um, serving the lower ranking guests fake food. You know, so, <laughs> so they knew where they were in the pecking order. They didn't even get food that they could actually eat. But we also know it's where the emperor was judged by his contemporaries, by his elite contemporaries. And so it's a very, very edgy place. You know, Tiberius, the successor of the first proper emperor, Augustus, he gets ridiculed because he serves up leftovers the day after. Now, instead of people thinking, well, that's a very good use of leftovers and there's no waste here, they think that's really mean. So it is the place where people are watching each other, they're thinking about where they are in the pecking order, and they're also wondering, because it's a prime homicide site, they're also wondering whether somebody is going to get murdered. 
<laughs> and uh, the the food tasters that were an absolute standard element in the Roman banquet in the Roman imperial palace were there for a purpose. They weren't there to check if the food was cooked okay. They were there to check that it hadn't been poisoned. The dynamics of the dinner table you describe almost as repeated and even more terrible form at the amphitheater. How? Well, there again, I mean, I think we have a very understandably crude view of the amphitheatre. And we talk about the baying crowds. And uh, we imagine it's Romans there really kind of with bloodlust. Now, in part, that must be an element. But I think it's always very surprising to people when you say, look, they all had to turn up in togas. You couldn't go to the amphitheatre if you weren't in a toga. That is like turning up in a tuxedo, right? This is very, very formalised. The Romans are there more like at the opera, almost, than at a wrestling match. And what they are seeing, just like, as you say, at the dinner party, they are seeing how Roman power works. Everybody in the Colosseum is sitting in the rank which he, and it's mostly he, holds in Roman society. So the senators are on the front row. Then there is the next down, the equestrian class, and then on up to the back. And they are watching the people who don't count in Roman society fighting in their midst. And it's a very political kind of theatre. I mean, it is disgusting and awful in our terms, but it is, it's it's much more contrived, much less um, out of control. It's a very controlled space. And that's where I think Ridley Scott in Gladiator 1, and we're waiting for Gladiator 2, gets it wrong. You know, mm. he makes them go, they're actually watching Roman power in action quite reverentially. Wow. Well, I think you've inadvertently sort of answered Brian's question, who tweets, what movie gives the most accurate portrayal of ancient Rome? And it doesn't sound like it's Gladiator, though. I'm sure well, that except was I love Gladiator. Right. You know, I, I cried. You know, I cried. <laughs> well, Mary Beard, such a pleasure to talk to you today. Thank you very much. Thank Mary- you. Yes, really appreciate it. Thank you. Mary Beard's new book is called Emperor of Rome, a fascinating look at the power of the emperor and how it was wielded and achieved. Thank you, Susie Britton, for producing today's segment. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising-Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.